Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. What a joy-filled morning it has been here at Community Bible Church. Please turn your Bibles to Titus chapter 3. Titus 3. What an exciting morning. I want to continue with that. Where, where does this excitement and this joy come from? It comes because the Word of God is true. Salvation actually happens. God is redeeming and adopting His chosen children every day, giving eternal life in Christ as a free gift made available through Jesus' blood poured out on the cross, which washes away the sins of men and women. We are a new creation in Christ, justified and made righteous before God based on faith, which He supplies. Olivia's baptism is a joy to us, and it's additional proof that God's Word is true to the praise of His glory and grace. I want to consider a couple trustworthy verses with you. God says in Isaiah through the prophet in chapter 1, verse 18, Come, come now, let us reason together with one another. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. Paul says in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by, in, the, in the flesh by the faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. And in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Paul tells the Corinthians this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. And that's exactly what we understand of Olivia and every one of us when Christ saves. New creation doesn't mean the rearranging of the deck chairs on the Titanic that is your life. It doesn't mean God slaps holy lipstick on the pig of your personhood. That's not what happens. John MacArthur says salvation is not a matter of improvement or perfection of what has previously existed. It's total transformation. The change is more radical than the change that takes place upon your death. That's what's happening in salvation, this new creation. New creation means this. New creation, Olivia, today, it means new heart, new mind, new soul, a new nature with new will and new hope built on new thoughts from new knowledge giving new desires for new relationships that match the new sense of righteousness, holiness, and godliness that radiate from the core of our beings because the Spirit of God lives in us. That's what new creation means. This transformational change is on the order of the change of the caterpillar to the butterfly. That's the transformation that we're talking about. It would be as if in Afghanistan, the Taliban tomorrow on Monday morning became the Union Gospel Mission of Afghanistan. It's that kind of change. It's transformational change. And if you're visiting with us and this transformation sounds crazy to you, that we could be saved from our sins because of a dead Savior, it's true. That's what the Bible says. We're simply living out the promises of God that He's given to His people for the last 6,500 years. We trust God's thoughts more than we trust our own because He made us and gave us His Word. You're in Titus 3, where I want you to read with me God's Word and see the new creation for yourself. I'm not making this up. This is exactly what God had planned. Titus 3, verses 3 to 7. Paul says to Titus, for we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, could never happen, but according to His mercy, 
by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, being justified by His grace, we would be made heirs that His children adopted according to the hope of eternal life. John Stott says, Scripture bears an unwavering testimony to both the power of ignorance and error to corrupt and the power of truth to liberate, ennoble, and refine. We're talking about a new creation. In Titus 3, you see both. We were enslaved to lusts and sins, but God saved us, not in our righteous deeds, but in His mercy and His grace, cleansing us, giving us hope and eternal life. We are indeed a new creation. Turn in your Bibles now to Ephesians chapter 4, and we'll continue our study in Ephesians 4. Thinking about salvation is where we need to be. Thinking about a new creation. These are good things to set our minds on this morning because we have to dive this morning back into the old man, the old nature. This morning is going to be a discussion about our sinfulness. It's going to be a little hurtful, and I just give you that warning right out of the gate. For 2,000 years, the church has observed and recorded the powerful ability of God to save anyone. What amount of sin? Lust and evil can stop the God of the universe from saving His elect. Answer, none. This is the big hope that we all have, that God is sovereign, actually sovereign, and He can save anyone. That's exactly what He did with Augustine of Hippo. We spoke about Augustine last week. There's more to learn from his life. We'll find out this week. Augustine himself was born in, on November 13th, 354 A.D. in Thagaste, North Africa, which is a city of the Roman Empire. His father's name was Patricius, and he was a typical pagan, middle-of-the-road Roman official in, there in Thagaste. His mother, Monica, was a committed Christian, full of faith, always praying for her son's salvation. And though he loved his mom, Augustine broke her heart with his disgusting, lustful choices. From the ages of 11 to 15, he was sent to the city of Madura for education, a city filled with paganism. It was there that Augustine picked up a love for literature, and poetry, and fornication. He was trained to indulge his raging lusts in Madura. And years later, Augustine confessed to the Lord that at that time, quote, unholy desire boiled confusedly within me and dragged away my unstable youth into the rough places of unchaste desires. I was tossed to and fro and wasted and poured out and boiled over in my fornications. After Madura, Augustine was sent to Carthage, a larger city with greater access to sexual sin, where Augustine noted, quote, a cauldron of unholy loves was seething and bubbling all around me. And while his studies went well for him, the mists, he said this, quote, the mists, the mists of passion steamed up out of the puddly lust of the flesh and the hot imagination of puberty. It was in the midst of his studies at Carthage that Augustine would engage in a 15-year relationship with a shack up honey who would give birth to his son, and the two would never be married. But God. But God had different plans for Augustine. After allowing Augustine to reach his rock bottom at age 31, God saved him and made Augustine a new creation, giving him an insatiable love for Christ and turning him into, quote, the most influential figure in the history of Christianity after Jesus and Paul, according to the publishers of Christian History magazine. Christian historian Justo Gonzalez said, the main currents of ancient theology converged in Augustine, 
And from him flow the rivers not only of medieval scholasticism, but also of 16th century Protestant theology. A man who was a pagan, a heathen, a fornicator for 31 years. How is it possible? How can you make someone who is your enemy, your friend, your servant, and even a great theologian? You've turned to Ephesians 4. We've been studying Ephesians verse by verse since October, and by Ephesians 4, Paul has told us very clearly, very plainly, how God's enemies become his friends. In chapter 1, verse 4, we find out that God chose us from eternity past to stand before him for all of eternity. Blameless we are, standing in his love before him. In chapter 1, verse 7, we're told that the blood of Jesus redeems us, forgiving our sins because of God's grace. And although we were dead in trespasses and sins, according to chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, God made us alive together with Christ, and by grace you have been saved, we read in chapters 2, verses 4 and 5. God's elect children, who have been given ears to hear, ears, election, adoption, redemption, salvation, God's chosen children, who have been given ears to hear, they respond in a very particular fashion to God. They respond in obedience to Christ to build His church. So why build the church? Well, you can see it in the text there at chapter 3, verse 21. Why build the church of Jesus Christ? Paul prays this prayer to close out chapter 3, and he says this. You build the church for this reason. To God be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Paul is saying to God's children, I know you, man. I know what God has done for you. And I know what needs to happen next in your life. You need to spiritually grow in a local church. What is next for your life then in the church? We find in chapter 4, verse 13. You, as a Christian, must be found building up the body of Christ, verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith. That's content. That's doctrine. And of the knowledge of the Son of God. Again, doctrine, Christology. To a mature man. That's virtue. To the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ, which only happens in a local church together. We are on a journey to the fullness of Christ's unity with each other here in the church. It is not the case that you can do Christianity by yourself off in the woods of Canada. You can't do that. To reach our goal, we must be commanded positively, as we see in chapter 4, verses 1 to 3, where Paul says, walk worthy, Christian, of the calling into which you've been called. Diligently preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Know, Paul says, know the blessings and the goals that Christ has given to you in the church, as we see in chapter 4, verses 4 through 16. And for spiritual growth, to arrive at this goal, we must also be commanded negatively, as we see in our text today. In chapter 4, verses 1 through 16, the focus is on unity. In chapter 4, verses 17 through 32, the focus is on purity. Purity. So I'm going to call this section of our text the saint's path to purity. We're going to read it for a few weeks, probably at least three in a row, verses 17 through 24. The saint's path to purity. We walk down the path to purity first by ending our Gentile walk. This is the title of our message this morning, ending our Gentile walk. We see this in chapter 4, verses 17 through 19. And next week, second, the saints will head down the path to purity by embracing our Savior's way embracing our Savior's way, from verses 20 to 24. But for this morning, 
Let's read chapter 4, verses 17 through 24, and see Paul's desire for purity just come to life from the text. It comes first in the negative as he reminds us of our great need to end our Gentile walk. Paul says, So this I say, and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way. If indeed you have heard Him and have been taught in Him, just as the truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. This text this morning offers an unfortunate, ugly, and yet mandatory reminder of the nature of our being, the very nature of our being. Do you know the nature of man? How is man born? Are you born good, bad, neutral? Ephesians 4, 17 through 19 is a lesson in anthropology, a lesson in the study of man. It is a lesson you will not get at the majority of high schools, particularly the public high schools. You will not hear this lesson on anthropology in 99% of colleges and universities in the world in which we live, nor is it appreciated and discussed in psychologists and psychiatrists' offices, among the professionals themselves, or with their clients who desperately need spiritual help. Understanding of self. This is understanding of self in the text today. This is essential information for spiritual growth for your personal well-being, and for your life in the body. We, brothers and sisters, are all born spiritually dead. That's the answer to the question on the quiz. We're all born spiritually bankrupt. We are spiritually a mess. We must be reminded of this fact because for years before our salvation, all of us have trained our flesh to love the things of this world. Paul even shows us the pattern or the cycle of the depravity that exists within us in our flesh, which spirals downward, 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 out of control. That pattern is in the text as well today. Paul is saying to the Ephesians and to all of us, I know you, man. I know your struggles and what it means to be a new creation. You're filled with the Holy Spirit of God, but your flesh lusts for the things of this world because you've trained your flesh to do that for years because your old nature, your old spirit was darkened, wicked, evil. Every day, Paul would say to you, every day you are tempted to walk in your old ways, just like the Gentiles. The flesh has that strength of pull. And then in the strongest terms, Paul says, don't do it. Don't go that way. Don't go back to your old ways ever. There's no fruit in it for you. It's your death to do that. You must flee your former Gentile life. He says in chapter 4, verse 17, So this I say and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk. Affirm in the text is the word marturomai, 
which means to testify, to declare, or to insist. Paul is expressing urgency and intensity. He is definitive and solemn as we see he claims to be speaking together with the Lord. He is saying, look, the Lord and I know exactly who you are, so listen up. Obey the things that I'm telling you, they're for your good, they're for your benefit. The urgency and solemnity of Paul's command comes from Paul's understanding of anthropology, the study of man. Quoting from Psalm 14, Paul expresses his anthropology, the views of man, in Romans chapter 3, verse 10 through 12. Let me give you a smattering of what Paul says in Romans 3. He says in Romans 3, quoting from Psalm 14, "...none are righteous, no, not one. None seek for God. No one is good." not even one. Brothers and sisters, that's you, that's me, that's everybody. All of humanity starts off bankrupt and empty. This is called total depravity, the inability to know, love, and obey God. It doesn't mean that all of us are murderers or even nearly as wicked as we possibly could be. No, it doesn't mean that. It, doesn't, it does mean, however, that all of us want to walk in our own ways and build our own kingdoms on our own terms, even fashioning and forming in our own hands a Jesus of our own understanding that's lovey and cuddly that we can snuggle up to at night and doesn't press us about our own sinfulness. You've made that idol. We've all made that idol, that Jesus idol. That's not the Jesus of the Bible. The text is going to make this clear to you. We do this with our hearts. So Paul here, addressing the brothers and sisters in the church, says, End the sinful pursuit of your own kingdom. Pursue the kingdom of Christ and build up His church by no longer walking like the Gentiles. You would know this Greek word, peripateo, it means walk. It literally means to walk, but figuratively is the sense we want to understand here. It means to live or conduct one's life. In chapter 4, verse 1, we talked through this when we recognized that Paul's first command is for you to walk worthy of the calling into which you've been called. Your English text says, walk no longer. And that's okay. That's a good translation, but Paul is resolute and insistent. And in the Greek text, he fronts, he fronts this word, no longer. He says, no longer, never again you walk. He's indignant. Very basic to Paul's command is the fact that he knows our old sinful nature. He knows our old Gentile ways. He knows the temptation of our flesh. And so he demands that we end our Gentile walk. And the question would immediately arise then, how do the Gentiles walk? How do they live? How do you know us, Paul? What have we been doing? What might we still fall into? Can you paint the picture for us? Now, he didn't need us to ask the question. He knows that we need the picture, and he's ready with the reminder. And we see it in the text where Paul vividly displays three disturbing details of our old Gentile walk, which demand rejection and removal from our lives. I'll say it again because that's where we're going today. Paul vividly displays three disturbing details of our old Gentile walk, which demand rejection and removal from our lives. It is here in the text that Paul highlights three features of our old, former Gentile life that require that we repent and that we run away from these ways. What three disturbing details of our old Gentile walk must we reject and run away from? These three disturbing details of our Gentile walk are these. Number one, for your notes, would be darkened minds. Number two would be hardened hearts. And number three would be calloused spirits. I'll do that again for you so you can have the outline for this morning. 
These three disturbing details of our old Gentile walk are, number one, darkened minds, number two, hardened hearts, and number three, calloused spirits. This is the Gentile walk, the essence and the nature of every human being. Paul makes the progression clear as there is a downward spiral in depravity which moves from the mind to the heart to the spirit. If we're going to build the church of Jesus Christ in unity through service and love in the content of our faith and the maturity of our character, we can have no part of our old Gentile ways. And so we get this picture of Gentile depravity from Paul in the text today. Paul says, I know you, man. I know exactly who you are and I know what lives inside of your heart. He gives us this first disturbing detail of our old Gentile walk as point number one in your notes. The first disturbing detail of our old Gentile walk, number one of three, darkened minds. Let's look at this point. Number one in your notes, darkened minds. Read the text with me again from chapter four, verse 17, where Paul commands us to no longer walk like the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding. In Greek thought, which still dominated Roman culture at this time, the intellect of man was the best noblest, and ultimately most worthwhile part of the human being, according to James Montgomery Boyce. The Greeks made a sharp distinction between the mind and the flesh, giving superiority to the content and aptitude of the mind. James Boyce says, for the ancient Greek thinkers, salvation consisted mainly in being delivered from the powers of the flesh by human reason. Philosophy was their savior. Greek pride is on display in all of the accumulated thoughts that they had about the mind of man and mind, the, 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 the mind of man and its power. So much they believed. But that stands in sharp contrast, brothers and sisters, to the thoughts of God about the human mind. Genesis 6-5 is where Moses records the reason God sent a global flood to destroy humanity except for eight people, saying this, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Paul picks up on this very idea of man's continually being evil in his thoughts, in the participle, darkened in the text, this word darkened. The perfect tense participle means that it was an action that happened in the past, but it has ongoing and continual effects today. In English, we don't have a verb tense that does the same thing. So the perfect tense really matters to us. This happened in the past and it has continuing effects today and on into the future. This word darkened, this participle, it also has the passive voice, which indicates that the darkness has happened to man's mind. It happened on man. And it continues to happen onto man from outside forces. What are the forces that are operating on man, darkening his mind? It begs the question, doesn't it? When was man's mind darkened? And how is it kept in this darkness? The answer for Augustine is very plain. The original sin of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. That's what God's Word says, so he just trusts God's Word. Augustine says, through Adam's sin, Adam subjected his descendants to the punishment of sin and damnation, for he had radically corrupted them in himself by his sinning. I would hope that you understand the concept of the figurehead representative the figurehead representative? Let me give you that illustration. Adam represented all of us in the garden the same way that Joe Biden represents all of America today. If Joe does well, we all reap the benefits. If Joe fails, we will all face the consequences. This is the same principle you have at play in 
with fathers who rule over their households. The leadership of the father directly affects the lives of the children. Like it or not, that's exactly what God has ordered and prioritized. There will be figurehead representatives, and Adam is that for us. So how did Adam do? How did Adam do in his being our figurehead representative? He failed miserably, leading the whole human race into sin. And right there in that moment, as I say that, I'm very mindful that somebody's pride could kick in and say, well, if I was there, that would never have happened. Oh, boy. If that's the case, let me tell you this. You are worse than Adam, if you would say such a thing. You are worse than him. You would have sinned in exactly the same way. Can you see the scars then today of Adam's original sin abounding in your own life and in the lives of those around you and in the lives of the men and women that are on the face of this planet with us today? Does our world display the truthfulness of the Bible and this understanding that Paul presents of original sin and total depravity seen in the darkened and futile minds of men and women? Can you see it? I hope you recognize, like at this moment, I could go anywhere, right? <laughs> Where do you want to go for an illustration? They're all over the place. Illustrations abound about this darkened mind. Gavin Newsom in California as the governor. A competitor against him for that race, Caitlyn Jenner. Jeffrey Epstein, who did not commit suicide. The Roman Catholic pedophilia scandal, which has been going on for how long? Abortion darling Kermit Gosnell and his handlers Planned Parenthood, who receive over $600 million a year from U.S. taxpayers for their work in murdering 350,000 American babies each year. Turn your Bibles to Colossians 1. And as much as I'm painting a picture of despair, I want to take you to Colossians 1 to show you the hope. But let me finish painting this picture of despair and total depravity and darkened, futile minds. Because all of us this last week watched in Afghanistan at the city of Kabul where two ISIS terrorists strapped bombs to themselves and walked into crowds of Afghan civilians, these civilians seeking American military protection that they might catch a flight out of the craziness that is Afghanistan and their city, Kabul. The darkened-minded terrorists, Islamic terrorists, detonated their bombs, killing 13 American servicemen and more than 170 Afghanistan civilians. How do you describe the mind which finds value and honor in a military suicide mission which targets civilian? In the most mild and basic terms, we can clearly say that what you're looking at is the mind of futility, which is clearly darkened. And where we can so clearly see that the minds of radical Islamist terrorists are dark and evil, many Americans are wondering about the darkness and futility of the minds of American leadership, which created the conditions that allowed ISIS and the Taliban access to kill so many people because of a failed plan to get us out of Afghanistan. This failed plan included the deaths of 12 Marines and one Navy corpsman, our 12 Marines and Navy corpsman. And many people today are asking these two questions. How much more futility is in the mind of our commander-in-chief, 
American President Joe Biden. What more humiliation and loss will America suffer because of the darkness of his mind? Again, illustrations of darkness and darkened minds are easy to come by in this world. The futility of President Biden is in all of us. Don't kid yourself. Don't believe for a minute that futility is tied only to age or political persuasion. Augustine asks rhetorically, what is the origin of evil will but pride? For pride, he says, is the beginning of sin. And what is pride but the craving for undue exaltation? Futile, darkened minds seek to exalt one person. Who's that? Self. Righteous minds, minds who have been saved and received salvation, they seek the exaltation of one as well. What one do the saved and the righteous seek exaltation for? God. They seek exaltation of God. President Biden's biggest problem is that he's only ever sought glory for himself. That's his biggest problem. His Afghanistan failure is a result of his desire to be the history book's hero president who got America out of Afghanistan. ISIS suicide bombers want glory for their false god Allah so that they can have sexual glory when they die in their jihad and go to their supposed heaven where they await the reward of 72 virgins. That's disgusting. It's the fruit, it's the fruit it is, in Islam of false worship and the absolute darkest black of a darkened and futile mind. In sharp contrast to the darkened mind of President Biden and all who practice Islam, what is the right use of the human mind? Jesus says in Matthew 22, verse 37, quoting from the Old Testament to the Pharisees who had gathered around him and challenged him, Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Well, that's been missing a lot in our world in the last week, hasn't it? Maybe this command leaves you frustrated because you remember that I just told you we were all born sinful, wicked, totally depraved, futile, and, de and darkened in our minds. And maybe you're wondering, how is meeting Jesus' command even possible? Great question. The answer is in Colossians, where you turn, Colossians 1, verse 21, where Paul gives us the solution that God had planned from eternity past. God has provided, saying in verse 21, and although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, verse 21, verse 22, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. If indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. Again, here in Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 and 22, Paul is saying to you, I know you, man. Christ is your Savior. He died on a cross to pay the debt of sin that you could never pay. He gives salvation as a free gift, which includes his holiness and blamelessness before him in love. And in this, Paul is saying to you, rejoice. He's conquered the world. Heaven awaits you. Eternal life forever. 
Just do this. Continue firmly in the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. The Gentile mind is darkened. Our temptation in this life is to return to futility in anti-God thinking. As new creatures in Christ, we cannot go the old way. We must love God just as Jesus commanded with all of our hearts, our minds, and our souls, which takes us to point number two in your notes, the second disturbing detail of our old Gentile walk, point two of three, hardened hearts. Let's look at this old hardened Gentile heart. Let's look at point number two, hardened hearts. It is the case that what you believe directly affects how you behave. These two things go hand in hand. It starts in the mind, it comes out of your mouth. It starts in the mind, it comes off of your fingertips. It starts in your mind, and then your feet move forward. What you believe directly affects how you behave. We understand this, and we understand the downward spiral of depravity that Paul is presenting to us in the text. We understand that if given over to our own thoughts, given over to lustful desires, given over to radical Islamic ideas, that at the end of that is a suicide because of a bomb strapped to your chest. We understand the road of depravity. We see how this works. Once the mind is captivated with anti-God thoughts, quickly thereafter, hearts are hardened in those sinful thoughts. That's how life works. If you didn't know that about mankind, this is what Paul's trying to communicate to you this morning. Such was the case in the life of Augustine of Hippo, who went shopping for an intellectual religion that would allow him to justify his lusting and fornication. And he came up with Manichaeanism. All his human wisdom hardened his heart toward God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. His darkened thinking impacted his heart, and down, down, down the spiral of depravity went Augustine. Even to the place we see next in the text, to a hardened heart. This is where Augustine landed, at a hardened heart. Continuing chapter 4, verse 18, where Paul says, the Gentile life is excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. Now, ignorance in the text sounds harmless. It sounds harmless. But you must consider the context in looking at this word ignorance. We're talking about life with God. That's the context, life with God. What is the opposite of life with God? Somebody? Eternal death with Satan in hell. That's the opposite. So this is the context. In chapter 4, verse 14, we are warned against being tossed around by winds and waves of doctrine, teachings of men, and the scheming and cunning craftiness and trickery that men come up with when they devise doctrines of demons and pull people off into shallow, weak theology for the practice of all kinds of immorality. As a result, Harold Honer says, this is not innocent ignorance, brothers and sisters. No, he says it's flagrant refusal of the knowledge of God. In the text also, excluded means alienated or intentionally separated from the life of God. We are excluded, alienated, intentionally separated from the life of God. Interestingly, this participle is also in the perfect tense and the passive voice, meaning that exclusion happened long ago and continues even to this moment. Exclusion also happened to you. It was done to you by someone else. You were passive in your being excluded. This should be a very interesting point for you. You should want to know more about what's excluding you. What causes exclusion? 
Who is actively excluding people from the life of God? Who is doing that? And the excluded, how do their hearts become hard? Turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 8. Exodus chapter 8. Genesis, Exodus, book number 2 in your Bible, chapter 8. Question for you as you turn there. Would you know it if someone got into your car and drove it while you were on vacation this year? Would you know it if someone stole your car right now, ripped it around the streets of Mead, and parked it back in the lot? Would you jump in your car and would you know that someone had been in your car? Would you know that it was driven unwelcomed by someone else? If that was my car, I would. I would absolutely know it. First, I would notice that the seat is not in the right place. And then the steering wheel, I would notice as well. And the mirrors, the mirrors would be out of line. And, and I know just even when I sit in the chair, the feel of the chair in my head relative to all the windows, I know something's not right. Something's not right. And I'm not alone in this. I think you would too. You know when unwelcome guests have disrupted your life. You know that. My t-shirts occasionally get worn by my wife. Do you know how I know? Because when I wear them, I start scratching and itching because one strand of the lovely locks from my wife's beautiful head of hair has inevitably left itself behind in my t-shirt. And the hair is unwelcome. It's an unexpected, unexpected visitor in my t-shirt. God doesn't have this problem with respect to his life. He doesn't have unwelcomed, unexpected visitors or guests in his life because his life is the true life. His life is the only life. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. This is the life of God we're talking about here. He is actively excluding all the sinful, all the wicked, all the evil in this world from his life. God is actively excluding. Listen to Paul explain this idea in, to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Paul says to the Corinthians, For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Answer, no one. I know my thoughts, you don't know them. Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. That's true as well. If it works for man, it works for God. It's the same way. Now, he says, verse 12, Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, so that we may know that we have arrived at the mind of Christ because of the Spirit that lives in us. If God wants you to have His Spirit, even his very life inside of you, that's his business, and you can't even stop him from delivering it. One person that didn't get the life of God given to him was Pharaoh in Egypt. You are in Exodus chapter 8. Look at verse 32. Israel has been held captive in Egypt for 400 years. We'll look at verse 29, actually. You can start with 29. This captivity lasted in Egypt for 400 years. God had commissioned Moses to lead Israel out of Egypt. Moses was told to deliver a very particular message to Pharaoh. The message, I cued you up there. Let my people go, right? That's the one, that's the message. Let my people go. What was, what was the problem? Pharaoh kept saying, no, that's right, no. 
No, I'm not going to let him go. Even now in the text, Pharaoh is playing games, telling Moses, sure, you can go. And then he's changing his mind. We need to ask. And as much as he's changing his mind, what's happening in Pharaoh's heart? That is what's important to us this morning. In the text, we're at plague number four of ten. This is the swarming of the flies. And Pharaoh again has said, go. And in addition to saying go, he's added this, only pray for me. Wow, (laughs) only pray for me. What a joke. You know, in his heart, he wanted relief from God's wrath without ever offering repentance to God who sent the flies. And so we read in the text in chapter 8, verse 29, Then Moses said, Behold, I am going out from you, Pharaoh, and I shall make supplication to the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart from Pharaoh and from his servants and from the people tomorrow. Only do not let Pharaoh deal deceitfully again in not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. So Moses went out from Pharaoh and made supplication to the Lord just as he had said. And the Lord did as Moses asked and removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh from his servants and from the people, not one remained. God was faithful. But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also, and he did not let the people go. We see in the text the futile and darkened mind of Pharaoh spiraling continually further out of control away from the thoughts and the mind and the wishes and the desires of God, his creator. Pharaoh is filled with pride. He's filled with selfishness. He's filled with evil. And look what happens next in the text. Turn to, na- to, to Exodus 9, 12. Exodus 9, 12. In, in chapter 9, verses 1 through 7, the fifth plague was dead cattle and livestock throughout all of Egypt. In verses 8 through 12, the sixth plague was boils covering their, their personal skin. And what happened next? Look at verse 12. Very interesting text. And the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. And he did not listen to them just as the Lord had spoken. You see, in Exodus chapter 4, God told Moses, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Ten times in Exodus, we are told that Pharaoh hardened his own heart, two before this text, twice before, in 8.15 and 8.32. Ten times in Exodus also, we are told that God also hardened Pharaoh's heart himself. And you ask, why? Why did God harden Pharaoh's heart? Turning your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. In short, let me give you this answer for why God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And I want you to hold on to this because this sets the whole course of the rest of your life. The answer to understanding why God hardened Pharaoh's heart is because God is sovereign. He is omniscient. He is omnipotent. He is always doing this. He is always drawing some, and he is always hardening others. It's a beautiful thing we think about Olivia's testimony, because she said over and over again, I didn't do this. God drew me to himself. He acted on me. And if I appreciate the idea that God would step into your life and draw you to him, And I'm comfortable with that. And I understand the sovereignty in that. And the omniscience and the omnipotence of God drawing Olivia to salvation, to him to be in Christ. I better darn well be happy with the idea that if he can do it on the one side positively, he can certainly do it on the other side, hardening in the negative. 
Just like He positively influences all the circumstances leading to our salvation, so too He negatively influences the lives of rebels, helping them to harden their hearts. How hypocritical would I have to be to sit in judgment over God for the way that He does grace or the way that He does wrath to get His own glory? If He said this is for His glory, then Olivia, you're saved. And if he says this is for his glory, then Pharaoh, you're headed to hell, your heart's hardened. The responsibility still lies with man. The sovereignty is always with God. There is no sense, there, there is no sense being angry or frustrated by this understanding of God's sovereignty. There's no sense of being upset or frustrated because of salvation or hardening. There's no sense of being frustrated. This seeming enigma... This conundrum, this paradox is only resolved in this. God is sovereign. He is powerful, perfect, loving, filled with justice, discipline, wrath, mercy, and grace, using all of these for our continued good, even over the top of our continued evil, all for His continued glory. You might say, well, why didn't God just give Pharaoh grace? Here's why. Because God didn't write Pharaoh's name in the book of life. God would be a liar if he gave Pharaoh grace, but in the book of life that he wrote before the foundation of the world, Pharaoh's name's not there. Then you would say to me, but it's not right for God to punish Pharaoh by hardening his heart. To which I would answer back to you, who made you the judge? Is that what Pharaoh would have said? I think Pharaoh was happy to be hardened further against God. He was so prideful, the Lord just fanned the flame of his pride. Or better yet, as Romans 1 describes it, God gave him over to pursue extreme hardness of his heart. You're in Romans chapter 1. Look at verse 18 with me. Read the text with me. And let the gravity of this thought sink into our hearts and minds of God giving over men and women to hardness of heart and why he would do that. Romans chapter 1, verse 18 goes this, goes this way. Paul says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who do this. They do this. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, the sun, the stars, the sky, the trees, so that they, all of humanity, are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. And verse 24, therefore, therefore, as a result of what man chose to do, therefore God gave them over in the lust of their heart to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, the one who is blessed forever. Amen. At this text, flashing lights and sirens should be going off in your mind. At this text, you are given the most massive warning 
and understanding about anthropology, the study of man, even the study of your own personal nature. You are in the text. And again, Paul says even here, I know you, man. You are willfully ignorant. You actively suppress the truth of God. Your heart is calloused over for pursuit of your own lust, and you are without excuse. The Gentile mind is a darkened place. The Gentile heart is darkened as well as a result, and the downward spiral doesn't stop until the Gentile spirit is calloused. Stay here in Romans, but I'm going to introduce point number three in your notes. The third disturbing detail of our Gentile walk, number three for your notes, is the calloused spirit. The calloused spirit. You remember from Ephesians chapter 4, verse 19, Paul takes us to the disgusting depths of the Gentile walk, commanding us to no longer walk as the Gentiles, who, in verse 19, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. Guitar players have calluses on their fingers from suppressing the strength of the chords. I haven't played for a while, and when I press my fingers into the chords, I can only do that for a couple of minutes, 15 at most, and, and your fingers want to bleed. They're, they're soft, they're palpable. They receive that and they don't like it. Guitar players callous their fingers on purpose. They callous, their callous skin is tough, and the nerves are deadened in their fingertips so that the sensitivity is gone. Gentile hearts are the same way. They're calloused, hardened, insensitive, and tough so that they can continue to pursue the desires of their flesh with reckless abandon. And what sin captures the hearts and minds of humanity more than any other? Sensuality. The expression of our sexuality. This sin. Your youth. You need to understand the depravity that lives inside of you, that lives inside of every one of us. I want to make this very explicitly clear. Sexuality that God has given to us is beautiful and glorious, but only in the context and the boundary of marriage, just as God has designed and commanded for us. Playing around with sexuality outside of God's plan in marriage comes with great negative consequences. Do not find out what those are. Stay away from the fire that is the sexuality of your life practice outside of God's boundaries in marriage. Not to mention this brokenness in our own sexuality. It comes with feelings of just that, brokenness. Feelings of guilt, hurt, loss, pain, and shame. Have you experienced those? Our world tells you, come on, do it, it's the best. What could it hurt? Oh, oh, it hurts, it hurts. One young woman was so broken so hurt, so filled with shame and guilt because she'd had sex before marriage with several boys that she sought counsel from a psychiatrist, which is where you go in the world if you don't know Christ, to talk about spiritual matters. And after hearing her dilemma, do you know what the worldly counselor, what the worldly counsel of the psychiatrist was that was offered to this woman? He offered for her to callous her spirit in regard to the matter. Well, how do you do that? What could she do to callous her spirit in regard to the matter of her guilt and her shame over the expression of her sexuality outside of God's boundaries? He suggested that she have sex with as many men as she could for a month and come back and see him to discuss if the shame and the guilt had gone away. Was he right? Will it work? 
Absolutely it will. Because you can callous your spirit. You can callous and sear your conscience. Many of us have. It'll work. You'll deaden your conscience. You can end the sensitivity to all of God's warnings. You can pursue, 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 pursue and callous yourself to God, to His ways of purity and righteousness. All for your supposed gain. These counselors are out here offering this exact kind of advice. It works. It works. And it'll send you straight to hell if you take that advice. I had you stay in Romans 1 for a reason. I want to keep reading with you from chapter 1, verse 26 to 32. And I want you to see how callous the Spirit can become. Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 26, For this reason God gave them over to the degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desires toward one another, men with men, committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty for their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. There's people teaching you to do these wicked, sinful things in our society. You know, Ephesus was faced with this exact problem. The Ephesians worshipped at the temple of Artemis. They worshipped the goddess Artemis, a goddess of sex, represented by a repulsive cow-wolf hybrid. The most prominent structure in Ephesus was a temple of Artemis. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Thousands, thousands of prostitutes, eunuchs, singers, and priests served the temple visitors every day. Why? Are you a stranger to this idea? Sex makes money. It's big business. Everybody was being enriched. Ephesus was one large public sexual festival. Men and women engaged in the most disgusting behavior. Heraclitus was a pagan 5th century philosopher. Listen to how he described Ephesus. This is a pagan. He says this. He said it is the darkness of vileness. The morals were lower than animals, and the inhabitants of Ephesus were fit only to be drowned. Well, God already did that. So they're going to have to have some other consequence, some other punishment. Turn back in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 19. Perfectly, the Ephesians' lives had matched the text of chapter 4, verse 19. The Ephesians had become calloused in their spirit, and as the text says, they had in verse 19, given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. He was describing them and their neighbors. This is the end of the line. This is the bottom of the barrel. This is the Marianas Trench in the downward spiral of depravity. It doesn't get any lower. And the Ephesians knew all about a calloused spirit. Paul says to the Ephesian believers, I know you, man. 
I know what you've seen and what you've done and what your city is all about. No longer are you to engage this Gentile way of life. Don't you ever forget, God saved you. He gave you grace and got you out of this filth. He ended all of the callous nature of your heart. He broke through your calluses. He pierced down into the depths of your soul. He extracted your heart of stone and gave you a heart of flesh. Never, ever get caught in the downward spiral of depravity like you have been. We've looked at these three points. You you were calloused in your spirit because of the hardening of your heart toward God caused by a futile and darkened mind. Christ has so much more for you in unity and purity, living to the glory of God in the church. That's what Paul would have you know after giving this grotesque reminder then, these three disturbing details that we've been looking at the last hour of the Gentile walk. Look what Paul says in chapter 4, verse 20. But you did not learn Christ in this way. He has bigger hopes. He has big ambitions for these people that God has elected, adopted, redeemed, and saved. Again, Paul says to them here, even in verse 20, he says, I know you. You were given ears to hear God's voice and to understand salvation in His Son. Walk worthy of the calling into which you've been called. No longer walk like the Gentiles. And so, Christian, I ask you, what should you take away from Paul's lesson in anthropology? First, I would tell you this. Take this away. No biblical anthropology that all men, all men, your neighbors included and your parents included, are born in sin. This is you. You need the continual reminder because the pull to return to the Gentile walk is strong like an ocean riptide pulling you back out to sea. Know your frailty. Know your weakness. Know your hardened heart and the opportunity to run there as you had in the past and resist it. Second, I would tell you, fill your mind with the truth of God's Word. There are no neutral thoughts in this world. God has opinions about premarital sex, abortion, Black Lives Matter, Muslims, and homosexuality. If you attempt to be neutral on these issues, you are headed down the road to a hardened heart. Don't harden your heart to God. Know what He thinks and match your thoughts to His. It'll go well for you. And then I would say third, protect your heart by fellowship with God's people. You need the strengthening, the equipping, the love and accountability of your brothers and sisters in Christ. Don't harden your heart to God or His people and find you are callous toward attendance in His church. Protect your heart by loving, growing, and serving in the local church. And then, as I've addressed you Christians, you brothers and sisters in Christ, my mind moves to what about an unbeliever who is sitting here with us today? If this is you, let me speak to you specifically and address you directly. Paul is after you in the text today. Paul is after you. He knows you, man, and he's nailed you. He's nailed you. This is exactly who you are and what you do. You've rejected God and His Word. You've been at best neutral toward God, but even neutral is hostile in mind toward God because there's no neutrality with God. You are willfully ignorant of the truth, and the reason why is the truth is just inconvenient, just flat-out inconvenient. Truth demands that you put to death the sin that you love so much. But I have this question for you then today. I have this question, and I hope this just slices right through. I have this question for you if you're an unbeliever, if you don't believe the things we're talking about. I would ask you this, why are you here today? Why are you here today? 
Is this God's work of drawing you or hardening you? Did God orchestrate the details of your life and bring you into this house of worship today to harden you like Pharaoh? Or is God using this message on anthropology and the study of men that you might understand yourself to tell you more about yourself than you've ever known? Is God using His Word to grab your attention, to arrest your heart, and cause you to see the evil of your ways? Is God going to use this message to bust through your callous spirit and breathe His life and truth into you? Is that what He's done? Is that what He's up to? If not today, this week, but why wait? Why not talk about these things today? He had to do this, brothers and sisters. He had to do this. If I can tell you, if you're, if you're with us and you don't believe these things, what I just described is exactly what he had to do to everyone else in this room. And I would ask you this. What could stop him from busting through your calloused, darkened, hardened heart and soul today? Nothing. Nothing can stop my God from doing that. God's message is simple. He made you. You were born a rebel. You sin against him every day, every single day, and the result is God's justice demands that you go to hell, but God's grace is found in this, in Romans 10, verse 9, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Let me leave you with Augustine's thought. Augustine said, during all of those years of my rebellion, where was my free will? How sweet all at once it was for me to be rid of those fruitless joys that I had once feared to lose. You, God, drove them from me. You who are the true sovereign joy. O oh, Lord my God, my light, my wealth, and my salvation. Father in heaven, you are our light, our wealth, our salvation. We have nothing else because in us is emptiness. We're void. We're filled with depravity even. We, we desire and strive for our own glory, our own kingdom. We want to make it in this world. It has led to our hurt, our pain, our destruction, our futility. We've been hardened in heart towards you. All of us have been. We've all calloused our ways toward you. Father, do an incredible work of salvation in and amongst those who don't believe. And for those who believe, Father, let us no longer walk like the Gentiles. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.